Assalamu alaikum everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Converts in Conversation. This week we're talking about culture and Islam and we've got an exciting guest with us. So Amina Jane, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. <laughs> Mashallah. Uh, so my name is Amina Jane O'Rourke and um, where to start? Where to start? Where do you start introducing yourself? So I'm, I'm a certified EFT practitioner and the founder of Shifa Healing Co. Uh, that's a service uh, exclusively for women that I offer at the moment, uh, based around emotional well-being and building emotional resilience, which inshallah will lead to spiritual resilience in faith-based life, allowing ourselves to remove the baggage of emotions which cloud our judgment and distract us um, from obviously the things that we really want to spend our time and energy on. Uh, so I've been in a pastoral supportive role, if you like, of uh, new Muslims, converts and heritage Muslims returning to Islam after some periods of distance, shall we say, um, for around nine years now. And it's something that I've obviously gained a bit of a reputation for. And I've absolutely loved it. It's been, um, you know, a joy, an indescribable joy to be part of people's journeys. So Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Mashallah. It sounds, sounds like you've had a long and beautiful journey in that supportive role. I forgot to say, I'm Jodie. Hello. Assalamu alaikum. And we've got Alice with us as well. Assalamualaikum, everyone. So it's me getting excited that we've got an exciting guest rushing forward. So, Amina Jane, do you want to tell us a bit more about what is EFT and what, what's, what's your role like as an EFT practitioner? So EFT is Emotional Freedom Technique. It stands for Emotional Freedom Technique, which is the best way I describe it at the moment is it's a bit like emotional acupuncture, but without any needles. So it provides like an emotional safe space for women and a confidential safe space, obviously, for women to come together with me and explain to me what's bothering them. And then we stimulate the acupressure points on the body. She follows me usually in the session. And it's based on uh, a description of her emotional experiences in some way, shape or form, from phobias to anxiety to um, anger and frustration, nervousness. Um, so she will follow me in the tapping technique, if you like, the acupressure technique. And we help relieve the emotional blockages that get stuck inside the body. So it gets the energy in the body moving and it's a relaxation technique, really. And it helps him, it helps us emotionally detached from really upsetting life experiences that then go on to dominate our behavior going forward into the future. So it's a very practical and versatile tool. Once you've done a couple of sessions with me, you're very aware of how to use it practically in your everyday life, unaided by me. I know I'm a little bit biased because I have had a session of EFT with Amina Jane and mine was for phobias because I've got loads of phobias of insects. And subhanAllah, there was actually a spider on the wall literally two days ago. And mum was, 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 was a spider on the wall. And usually I'd be like, oh my gosh, get, get away, run away. I'd be out of the room. And I was kind of like, all right, okay, it's a spider. I don't, don't really like it, but not not all that fussed. Which is was a big change for me, actually, because I've had a spider phobia for, oh gosh, it must be at least 25 years now. You know, I've had a spider phobia, an insect phobia for as long as I can remember. Um so yeah, EFT fascinates me as a therapist and I'm sure Alice as a mental health nurse were kind of like, wow, this, this sounds really interesting, you know, fascinating. Um, so in terms of EFT, Amina, 
does your faith inform the way that you work? What's the kind of interrelation between your faith and EFT? Uh, well, as a practicing Muslim woman, I don't think you can say that it doesn't because obviously it's it permeates every aspect of your life from obviously waking to sleeping and obviously, you know, that high level of integrity even, you know, when you're interacting with somebody, they're trusting you with the most vulnerable inner thoughts that they quite often have never actually said out loud to anybody else before. That's an incredible amana and a, an incredible, you know, promise in front of Allah that you go into, in front of God that you're going to, you know, keep this person's confidence you're going to hold this space for this person and obviously my role even before EFT so I suffered with anxiety back in 2015 due to external um, factors and I wanted a non-medicinal practical way um, that wasn't going through the NHS actually at the time because I was a public servant I didn't want anxiety like lots of people on my medical records I wanted a discreet way to naturally clear this anxiety and it was quite significant like I I was vomiting every day, I, you know, I was in the bathroom and, um, you know, I was stressed, I couldn't sleep um, and I was very triggered and this was really helpful for me personally as an individual and I mentioned that because so many things go through your head when you're suffering with something like that, you both know this as uh, mental health practitioners, you know, so, you know, all those different things about what somebody going to think of me and it's about creating validation in those early moments validation not for yourself because it makes you feel good or makes the other person feel good validation for the sake of Allah because every single one of us is human so it's like I, I might not completely understand why you feel the way that you feel due to everybody's life experiences being different but the least I can do is allow this neutral space for you to really get things off your chest without any fear of judgment whatsoever because none of us are perfect and everybody's got stuff I call it that they don't talk about and then the sooner we normalize talking about that stuff because you know mental health practitioners you know under other guises have existed from the the prophet was the most emotionally intelligent human being you know and they were they were healers in the community at the time you know and they would go to him and say this is the healing modality that I use for people like it was rookier and things like this and other you know hijama and all that kind of stuff and uh, obviously they would show him whatever their therapeutic method was and if it you know if it was beneficial he'd say yeah let's keep that let's keep that and he would direct people you know so the reason why I'm mentioning that is because it's really important that as practicing Muslims, we don't always put our eggs. We always want to rush to a scholar or an imam to talk about our woes, when in reality, they're not always the best person when it comes to mental health and emotional health to actually discuss those things with because they have no exposure to that reality. Their lives are based in sacred knowledge and mashallah for that, we absolutely need it. I'm just glad that now there seems to be an emergence, especially in the female Muslim community of therapists and supporters of um, well-being so much so in so many different ways as well so the question obviously that you asked me sorry I, I digress a little bit there was um, does my faith inform uh, my work absolutely 100% because when our emotional well-being and our mental health is well it allows us to focus on being a more effective worshipper and if that that's the goal isn't it you know to establish um, effective worship so to speak so how many people go into Salah and say a thousand things jump in my head I can't concentrate on a thing it's helping calm people's souls down it really really is by the will of Allah Alhamdulillah so it absolutely informs my work is the short answer <laughs> sorry 
we love a long answer that you know they're they're interesting Alice did you want to jump in I've got a little just um I, I was thinking then when you were talking um I don't know you you've probably both experienced this as well as mental health practitioners but I'm sure you've had it where someone will come to you I've had it in clinic where and they'll caveat what they're saying with this is going to sound so stupid or you're going to think I'm crazy or this is going you just sit there thinking listen I've heard it all there is nothing you can tell and they'll tell you this thing that to them is just so bizarre or ridiculous and you're just like yeah and that's completely normal that's I've heard that and the relief that people feel because to them in their day-to-day -day lives they've probably not wanted to confide or maybe they've tried to confide in people and people have been like oh no that's a bit that's not right that's a bit but when they come into that environment it's like the relief they feel when you're like yeah that's nothing to worry about at all like that's totally normal and here's what we're gonna do you know so yeah that was, I was just thinking that when you were talking I'm sure I'm wondering whether you've both had those experiences I'm in a Jane absolutely 100% you know uh, anger's a big one and Muslim women I often I, I always say this to say we all know those women that they don't even want they float you all know them I know you know them because I know them but I also know that they're some of my clients and some of those people who float in the community, you seemingly, subhanAllah, mashallah, look at her. If only we could be more like her. Nearly everybody's got their own issues in some way. And it is so important to provide these spaces. Like you say, they put, oh, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this. I had a woman just a, couple, a few days ago and hers was a weight issue. And she said, I'm so embarrassed to talk about this, but I'm really bothered by my weight. And I know you must think it's, you know, a crazy dunya thing to be bothered about. And I said, absolutely not. Your weight affects how you feel emotionally, which affects your weight, which affects, obviously, you know, it literally, you know, the way you worship. Can you worship effectively if you're gaining weight, you know, at an unhealthy level? And the reality is, I don't know many women who are, who are at their ideal weight. But it's good that you're feeling motivated, like you want to actually do something about it and not just for yourself, but for health reasons as well. Because being a, a more physically healthy human being makes you a more effective worshipper too, because you're not lethargic, you've not got brain fog. And, you know, and she thought it was an incredibly mundane thing to be stressed about. And I was like, no, really. I've also known Muslim women who will punch their steering wheel out of rage because somebody's cut them off on the road. Hijabi. You know, we all float, even in the cars, until you see somebody biting the steering wheel and punching it and you think, what on earth? You know, when she told me about it, she's like, I'm so embarrassed. And then obviously, you know, she, she actually did some EFT. It was some time ago I did the EFT with her for that because we looked at, you know, well, what is it that's making you that angry? What, what's happening inside your body? You know, when, when those feelings of anger start to uh, arise, you know, how do you identify that you're getting angry? And obviously after a couple of sessions, she was just so delighted and she was just like, oh, I feel so silly now about what I was getting angry about. And half of it is just sharing it. Half of it is just having somebody where you can say, I feel confident and comfortable to speak to you. So it's humanizing yourself as, wow, congratulations, we're all human, we've all got anger, we've all got, you know, envy. There's lots of different things about us that we've got to, it's constant, you know, spiritual muscles and emotional muscles, just like physical muscles need training and tuning and, you know, constant work. So absolutely providing that unconditional non-judgmental space. I say the key for me is having unconditional good regard, regardless of who sat in front of you, even if it's a non-Muslim sat in front of you and they might live a completely different lifestyle, which some things may con be considered outrageous. We've all got, I'm sure, a family experience of that at least, if not our own experience pre-Islam. 
And the reason I say that is because you've spoken about this before, you know, um, converts especially become Muslim when we do the thousand mile an hour thing, usually very early on and we've come holier than thou. And we believe the hype. We believe that, oh, mashallah, you're a convert and mashallah, mashallah, mashallah. And it's like reality is that euphoria dips very quick, doesn't it? I've digressed again. I do apologise. I do do this a little bit. <laughs> I apologise for that. You no, know, it's, it's on the right of thread though, isn't it? Because I think what we're talking about is the idea of shame and not being able mm. to be honest with our experiences doesn't help. Because if we get caught up in that focus of, you know, I can't believe I'm angry, that's such an awful thing to do. Or I can't believe I'm anxious, I have no trust in the last one of us. All of those become blockages and barriers to worship. Mm. And if we become victims of our own ego which lots of converts do you know i am holy than thou mashallah me that also becomes a barrier to worship because we don't see ourselves as these infallible humans that make mistakes and have difficulties because we all are like that and i think these are important things to think about so if we're thinking about converts reverts whatever word you choose to use in terms of pastoral care amina what would you I suppose how would we improve and how did you become involved in the work of pastoral care for converts and reverts how could that grow as a as a avenue of support I suppose I think before I became Muslim on my journey to Islam I realized that convert support wasn't fit for purpose and I was very passionate about it even though at that time I was saying oh stop trying to convert me <laughs> But I'm passionate about this to the extent, like, I think Muhammad was a great guy, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I think anybody who chooses to embrace the faith, it should be heavily supported. But even then, I couldn't truly grasp what was actually needed. And these kind of things only come with experience. I've had my own fair share of uh, poor decision making over the years from my limited understanding in one way or another. So one of the things that's the biggest barrier I think, is that Muslims in the West often live what's known as culturally predatory Islam. And what that means is, regardless of where they're from, their interpretation of Islam, plus their cultural heritage and um, inheritance, I'm going to call it, in a positive way. I'm not talking about the negative stuff, I'm talking even about the positive stuff, even comes across like a superiority, like a superior thing to the Muslims, uh, the non-Muslims and the new Muslims, wherever they have migrated to. And this in itself creates a disconnect because none of us become Muslim to become Pakistani, none of us become Muslim to become Arab, none of us become Muslim to become Chinese or, you know, African or what have you. We become Muslim because Islam spoke to our hearts you know, in a way that we felt like as English girls, for example, English young women, that I can actually embrace this way of life and it's completely cohesive with me and my environment because it's for all people anywhere at all times. So I think we really do need a paradigm shift first and foremost in relation to how we view difference because I think many of us have even arrived on our own personal journey and we refuse to accept difference. We don't know how to have a respectful difference of opinion according to, you know, the adab and manners of the Prophet because if we did, we wouldn't fall out about them. We wouldn't. And there's only ever been one rule fits all, for example, 
even probably at the time of the Prophet Wasallam, was still alive and obviously after his death that's when the differences of opinion started to arise because different people saw different things at different times they're actually a great mercy from Allah they really really are and I think if we can kind of if we can cultivate spaces of good cultural conventions of the local people where we live then we will have more converts staying on the deen after they become Muslim. Even through having access to virtual spaces or social spaces or educational spaces where, like, for example, I, th- I think you've probably attended some of my things in the past. I think Alice has as well, or she, I know she definitely tried to a few years ago. So we've been known, myself and my husband, for providing um, culturally relevant iftars in Ramadan. Uh, obviously not last year because of the lockdowns and everything, and e-day parties for celebrations for convert families and isolated heritage Muslims who, you know, like refugees particularly, or even just any isolated heritage Muslim who hasn't got extended family to celebrate with. And the the reason those events have been so popular and they've touched so many hearts over the years is because all the food is diverse, isn't just curry. I love curry, by the way. In fact, my husband bought me a curry on Friday. It's the first Asian curry I've eaten in 18 months and it was the best. Uh, but he doesn't like Asian food, like he's not a fan. So obviously we don't have it very much at home, but we have jam sandwiches next to the Buna and the biryani and we have, you know, Jamaican food and Caribbean food and we have, you know, famous Irish dishes and famous African dishes and Italian. And there's a lot to be said for building nostalgia for our younger Umrah, especially like children of converts and, you know, whether they're convert children themselves or whether they're born Muslim children of converts, establishing those traditions and those really deep, the, the psyche of nostalgia is powerful. As you both know, those first seven years is where it all happens. So trying to embed, you know, this positive, confident Muslim identity in our young people and in ourselves as well because you know most converts miss Christmas and all that kind of stuff that's the reason we put these events on the way that we did that's the reason why we did it in a way where non-Muslims would want to come so we always had like non-Muslim family members say we've never felt like this when we went to a Muslim thing before this is fab you know and it's like and it's not an intentional thing on born Muslim community that they don't try to include people I think it's just a case of it's just a gap that needs filling and if you've got people around who know how to fill that gap then let's facilitate, let's, you, you know, let's allow that space to kind of be nurtured and cultivated. And that helps bridge a gap there, I think. And in with that, become stronger, more confident, you know, Muslim identities in converts because they feel like they belong. Islam belongs to them and they belong to Islam without having to conform to, because we've got a fusion of cultures. The reality is because there's so many different communities and every single positive thing from everyone else's culture mashallah may Allah make us people of each other in that way and yes these negative aspects of culture but Islam actually uh, it was an obligation throughout the history of Islam to embed the good cultural conventions of the community so when Muslims went out to do the dawah in the very early days for example in China I think it's Alice has been to China haven't you mashallah see photographs and um Uh, may Allah allow me to go there one day and see this for myself because it just looks so incredible Islam's been there for over 1400 years that's how long Islam's been in China for which is so subhanallah when I think about it you know like the year on now 1442 and it's been in China itself how far away that is from you know the Arabian Peninsula 
and even the architecture throughout Muslim history it's been tectonic it's been there to accentuate the beauty of the land that the buildings have been built on whether it's Spain or China or Mali in Africa and it was supposed to only ever be like a clear a crystal clear river so the bedrock changes from country to country and the Islam is the river the water changes color according to where it's running whether it's on sand or stones or grass and this once we establish this as a norm I think converts will become much more confident people will become much more confident in pastorally supporting each other on the convert journey or even the returning journey because the heritage Muslim I would argue heritage Muslims have equally got about as many people coming back as their conversions we've got coming in and it's about providing which you guys know all about non-judgmental safe space to allow people to take those baby steps back into uh, practicing Islam and being able to you know be obliged to the Sharia around certain things so it's about tweaking the good aspects of culture in line with the Sharia and sacred law the other thing I wanted to mention was we have like a long history here in the UK and in the West in general of people issuing fatwas without taking cultural customs social you know um, local customs into consideration which causes like great deviation throughout history of Islam up until about 200 years ago, that was always the case. The Qadis, the judges, the Muftis would say, you have to consider the good cultural norms of the country that we're living in before we issue a fatwa. You know, may Allah create more openings for these kind of things because we need it. We don't need Islam to feel like an alien foreign thing because it's really not, it's really not. Sorry, I've kind of really, really, really spoken quite a long time there. What, what are your thoughts on that, Alice? What are your thoughts on that, Jody? That was just amazing. Just everything you said there was absolutely fantastic. And, and yeah, I've I've been to China and it just, I think, especially recently, I mean, could argue maybe in the past hundred years with the creation of Saudi Arabia, um, Islam has become very Arab centric, I feel. And, you know, often people don't realise that there are, you know, cultures around the world that have had, you know, Islam for my goodness a very very long time like the oldest mosque in china which i believe is in guangzhou it was only built sort of a hundred years after the the founding of islam you know it's really really quite quite um you know there from the birth of the, of the dean really but um one thing i really wanted to ask um being a, a reaver and being married to an, another reaver when you when it came to sort of having traditions for your family in terms of being a Muslim family was that a, was that a conscious decision you made to start introducing um certain traditions and you know that sense of nostalgia and sentimentality or did it sort of come naturally and then after a few years you sort of realize oh you know we're doing this thing every year so that's sort of part of our family tradition like how did it come about so for us first of all um when I was working with my husband, because that's how I met him in the first place, he was running a homeless project uh, in another city and we were comparing notes on how to effectively feed the homeless in different places, how we can benefit each other's uh, delivery process and maximise, obviously, you know, um, those services to people. Um, he introduced me to this concept of the cultural Islam and the cultural imperative and he sent me a couple of video clips about it and I was like, SubhanAllah, this right here, this is what I converted for, this type of Islam type of thing, which 
Islam. It's authentic Islam. It's just, it's not in the mass media. It's not what we've got exposure to. So straight away, I was just like, wow, give me more type of thing. So I became very interested in this as a concept, literally from being a year into Islam. So it was very much part of my early foundation building of who I wanted to be as a Muslim woman, as a Muslim daughter, as a Muslim mother. And you mentioned about traditions. So obviously we've just had the festive period. It's been and gone and everything. So much contention, unnecessary contention around the holiday period, if you ask me. Because obviously these days, obviously, I'm not going to get into a big debate about Christmas, but our obligation is to make sure that our mother especially is happy with us. So my first year as Muslim, for example, I dressed in the clothes that I would have dressed in previously. And I put a really long coat on and I was already a hijabi by my first Christmas. And I kind of like put a, a hood over my head and I showed up at a house. There was only her and my immediate family there, but I put a face full of makeup on, done my hair the way she likes it and literally walked in the house pulled off this coat like I was in a movie or something and she cried she said that's the best Christmas present I could have ever had seeing you dressed in a Christmas dress and I say Christmas dress it was just like a black dress with a bit of sparkle on it that was a present for her that was part of respecting and appreciating her culture of celebrating this day that's very important to her not for religious reasons but it's always been a time of year even for born Muslims they always come together at Christmas time because it's a national holiday you know so that in itself creates nostalgia I even said just this Christmas just gone. This is an example because it's the most recent festival we've passed. Get, uh, traditionally on my Christmas table, for example, we would have um, a beautiful centerpiece that my mum would make with candles and, you know, glitter and some plants for the Christmas season and maybe some white roses or red roses or something like that. She'd just make it herself. She would have a table runner. We would have crystal glasses and we would have cutlery that you only ever used at Christmas. And I appreciate not every household is going to be able to do this. But that's one of the things that made it feel special. It was the only day of the year we would have a starter because I grew up in quite a skin house, if I'm being honest with you. We very rarely ate red meat. Like red meat was like, it was like a Christmas thing. And so I say this because, you know, it's the only day of the year that we would have like a starter and a dessert on the same day, you know, because of like uh, challenges with finances. But even in the small ways. So for example, after Christmas this year, I was like, we need a table runner for Eid. We need some nice special glasses that only come out at Eid. We need, we already have the cutlery that we can get out at Eid, but try and make it that extra bit special because the, when it comes to creating, creating cultural and traditional norms, because there's nothing wrong with having a, a fancy table on Eid day. I'm sure loads of Muslims do it in their own culturally relevant way. And that's fine. Bengalis do it their way. Pakistanis do it their way. Arabs do it their way. So I'm English and I'll do it my way. <laughs> you know? I'm English and I've got like, uh, I say I'm English. Three of my grandparents were not English. So as white as I looked, you know, I'm very much the grandchild of migrants, you know, like to the UK. So there's already a fusion of cultures in there from my Irish side and um, creating these nostalgic experiences for our children. I was told about very early on in my Islam that it's really important because what do you want the nostalgia and narrative to be of your young children? So it's there's so many halal aspects when you understand Islam and the cultural imperative, so many things you can invite in, so many things you can say. I remember the first time I ate shepherd's pie. It sounds ridiculous. I must have been Muslim two years and I was like, no way, I can still eat shepherd's pie. Of course, it was obvious from the beginning, but because of the people I was around at the time, it was all about curry and Asian food. I was a bit like, you just you just kind of let go of yourself. Cultural suicide is what we commit because we think it's the right thing to do. And it really isn't. It causes so much havoc and it damages relationships. 
for lifetimes sometimes. So even in line with changing your name, for example, I mentioned that, I know you might have already done a podcast on this. The advice from my teachers is the Prophet only, literally only ever changed people's names if it was of bad meaning. So I accept that some Muslims might want to adopt a new name and it's part of their new identity and things like that. And each to their own, that's okay. But nobody should be making anybody feel like they have to do it. It's abs- My name, Jane, means God is gracious in Hebrew. Had I have known that at the time of my, the start of my Muslim life, I would have just kept Jane. I wouldn't have even thought about taking another name. So creating those traditional cultural norms for the king, there is definitely a significant fusion of multiple cultures. My husband's from a Jamaican background and an English background. I'm from an Irish, English and Maltese background. And obviously we've got the the blessed opportunity to take from the halal elements of everybody else's culture as well. So when you see something, halal, pickpocket it. You see somebody with a decoration you like, make it your own. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with this. And we do have to make it special for the kids, especially in primary school age, I think, especially if they're attending school as well. So that they, it's all about them establishing strong and confident Muslim identities and they'll do that through t- traditions and memories. All I'm thinking about now is Christmas has gone by and there's going to be loads of decorations in the shops that are like bargain prices. And I'm going to stock up. Absolutely. So I'm thinking about in terms of time, we're, going, we're coming up to our break. So I think what we're saying in this part is faith permeates everything, including culture. And it's not about right or wrong or all or nothing approaches. It's about keeping the good stuff and reevaluating the things that we think, oh, is, is that bad? Is that OK? Checking that out and then making a decision. Um, so next part, we'll think more about this gap and how we as a community can foster more growth in terms of that revert, convert, support and the sort of the cultural minefield that it can be. So Islam alaikum for now and we'll see you in part two. Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome back to Converts in Conversation part two. Today we are talking about culture and Islam and hopefully you've enjoyed the first part which was mashallah wonderful we you know me and Alice really enjoyed listening to everything that Amina Jane said because she's a wealth of knowledge mashallah so we're going on to talk about British Muslim culture so first the question I'm going to ask is do you feel there is or ever will be a British Muslim culture so thinking about as heritage Muslims become possibly more removed from their parents cultures third and fourth generation but also increasing number of reverts or people Coming back to the faith. Amina Jane, do you want to jump in first? Yeah, so do I ever think there will be? I think there most definitely should be. I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be after everything we just discussed. You know, it's in terms of validating human experience, it really is the essence of compliment, isn't it? So, for example, one of my teachers would say, We shouldn't be aliens anywhere we go. We're Muslims. We're the people of purity, we're the people of faith, and we're the people that bring good tidings to the people. So there really should be a British Muslim identity because of the cultural fusion and the, you know, the ethnic fusion that we have going on, obviously due to like mass migration and whatnot. I think that British born, for example, I was criticized once uh from somebody from the pakistani community saying oh what you do is really good but you do it just for converts quite often and you know british-born pakistanis often feel like converts and 
you know, we kind of relate to that experience. And I 100% agree. And I said, but you do need a British born Pakistani to be able to facilitate that in a non judgmental way to make it truly relevant to the British born Pakistani community because. They don't look at me as this white girl, like, what do you actually know? You don't know our life experience. You don't even know half our jokes. You just, you gotty, gotty, gotty. And I say that because I've been called gotty so many times over the years. And I'm like, even though it's not supposed to be an offensive thing, it always feels kind of offensive, <laughs> you know? And I know it's just a language barrier. And Urdu is one of the most beautiful languages. It really, really is. I think that there should always be that skill share. I think, you know, children, grandchildren of, you know, migrants or great grandchildren of migrants should always retain the positive aspects of their own culture and share it with the people around them, including the best manners. Is forefront is best manners, but to have the language as well, because I know that's something that's in decline. It's really, really important, really important. I think that there's a lot more commonalities we can come together on when we actually take steps intellectually to, and I say intellectually, we take steps intellectually, but we take steps from uh, the heart's intellect as well when we try and understand other human beings. And mothers can often relate to this because even though your children will send you crazy one minute or, you know, drive you up the wall the next minute, you have this unconditional, this rahma, subhanAllah, that Allah has placed inside our womb. That was just like, oh, but I just have to forgive you for it because anyway, the reason I'm digressing again. <laughs> the reason why I'm mentioning that is because it really is the essence of who we need to be with each other. Having this unconditional good regard and acceptance of difference is where we are. Most of us are culturally predatory. British-born Pakistanis are culturally predatory. Predatory converts can be culturally predatory as well. It's, you know, and, you know, Bengalis, uh, African Muslims, we can all be very culturally predatory because it's what is our cultural norm, what is their, their, their traditions and our traditions. These are the things that have created, nurtured and uh, mustered the nostalgia that really makes them feel whole as a Muslim. And anything from outside of that almost is viewed like a threat when in reality we should be embracing it and saying, oh, yeah, so these guys, they, they come from this part of the world. You know, when we're explaining it to our children, for example, or even to, um, you know, other adults, they come from this part of the world and they do this thing. It's not necessarily an Islamic thing, but it's so incredible you should see it because there's so much richness, whether it's to do with cloth and clothing or whether it's to do with a type of wedding dance. We know that there's lots of them around as long as it's men dancing with the men and women dancing with the women type of thing, you know, and it's not salacious in any way, shape or form. There are so many culturally rich positive aspects that we can fuse further on, you know, a further fusion of, so to speak it's really important I definitely think that that's a doable thing without a shadow of a doubt but it starts with the intellect of the heart and mind accepting each other's difference and saying do you know that doesn't mean I've got to give my thing up I really love that about your thing subhanallah you know and you know yeah that's it really I definitely think it's a doable thing and if you look at Abdullah Quillian have you both heard of Abdullah Quillian Jodie's nodding is Alice nodding too yeah. yeah, mashallah. Um, so obviously, you know, he he was like he was quite incredible. You know, like they had like you know they had the times where they wore like so. For example, they'll have a time and a place to wear like the the sh I wouldn't say Sharia compliant clothing because all of our clothes should be Sharia compliant. Obviously, as much as we're we're in the space to be able to take those steps towards it, that's what we're striving for. Even if we're not there, it's what we're striving for long term. The reason why I mention it is because there's always a time and a place to dress the right way. 
So he was a lawyer as well as a, a British Muslim and uh, obviously he used to wear suits and things like that as well. But then he would have his times where he would wear his robes and his turban. He established the first mosque in the UK, for example, over there in Liverpool. Uh, if you've not been, you should definitely go. Absolutely, definitely go, should go. It uh, really is an incredible experience to go there and experience that. But I believe that they were establishing a culturally uh, British Muslim Islam experience, you know, for the people at the time, for the con converts at the time, and even for the born Muslims that were visiting, they didn't see it as a predatory thing. They saw it as like, wow, look at these English people becoming Muslim and they're doing their own thing. And I mean, they even sang things that sounded a lot like hymns, but they were, they were, they sounded like hymns, but they were about Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because the way they'd built nostalgia, for example, uh, growing up in a Christian environment is hymns have always been a thing, right? So it was about them trying to establish something that's completely halal and conducive to having a wholesome Muslim life, but tweaking it to be compliant with, you know, Islam itself. So it's been done before at a small level, and I wholesomely, it's more Muslims now here than has ever been before, to my knowledge. We can definitely do this. It's about coming together and accepting each other's difference. I think that's the thing with culture, isn't it? It's not a my way is the right way and your way is the wrong way. It's just going, wow, that's really interesting. Just being fascinated by people and communities and societies. It gets me thinking because my little one is four now. And the amount of times I've been asked, oh, so is he a convert to Islam? And I'm like, he's four. And I was Muslim when he was born. So no, he's not a convert. He's a born Muslim. And they're like, but he's white. And he's a born Muslim. It's almost like it doesn't compute. Like the idea of born Muslim must be, and I put air quotes, like a foreign thing, rather than going, yeah. he's a person and he believes in God. Mashallah. And yeah. then going off with the, you know, the just the fascination of people and how they do things and, and those being really beautiful ways to do it. It's like in my family. So my mum was actually born in Singapore because that's where my grandparents were living at the time. And so we eat lots of food that is very similar to that sort of place in the world but if you looked at me and my husband and saw us eating you know special fried rice you'd be thinking well that doesn't match because they're white but it's one of those things that it's become a family culture for us because my grandparents cooked like that and that's just become standard like my gran has loads of prayer mats around the house because they used to have lots of Malaysian students staying with them when she was growing up so they would bring all the prayer mats and then go here's a gift have a prayer mat so she's got prayer mats everywhere she's not Muslim but it's just, it's one of those things that is a norm within our family. And I think embracing those new norms rather than feeling threatened by things is the way that we can sort of move forward with this sort of thing. Alice, do you want to jump in? Yeah, and I think, you know, if we look at where Islam has spread throughout the world and you see that it's very much tailored in a ways to like the culture or the area. You know, you look at like the mosques in China, Malaysian Muslims, how they dress different parts of Africa and things like that. And it's like, you know, it wasn't culturally predatory to kind of be like, right, okay, well, this has come from the Arab Peninsula and this is how we do it. And you're all gonna, because otherwise we'd have this very homogenous, you know, idea of what Islam is. Um, and it is very, I mean, I love that, especially where I live now. And when it's Eid last year, we went over to the park and obviously you've got lots of Malaysian students at the University of Manchester. So they're wearing all their traditional dress on Eid. And then you've got, you know, South Asians, um, lots of Muslims from different parts of the world wearing their traditional dress. And it was so lovely. And then, you know, sort of people wearing kind of like re reverts as well, wearing, you know, whatever they wanted to wear. And it was really lovely seeing that going, we're all celebrating the same day. We're all doing this for the same reason, but we're all still 
who we are, you know? It was really, really lovely to see that. So anyway, I think the next question was about sort of pastoral care, pastoral support in Islam, which we, um, I personally feel quite strongly about as well, just in terms of kind of comparing it to other faiths. I, I was raised Christian, um, but my mum, interesting, my well, my mum didn't start going to church properly until I was about six because she was quite unwell. Um, she got pneumonia and her grandfather died. It was a big thing, you know, big trauma for her. So she sort of found solace in God and started going to church regularly. And then we started going. She did the Alpha course, which is the, you know, the course when you learn about Christianity and all this. Um, and there was a lot of support for my mum when she became a practicing Christian. Her life is so involved and entwined with the church now this church same church she still goes to now um and when i converted to islam there just wasn't there wasn't that there wasn't that at all it's very piecemeal it depends on the area what you get and what i wanted to ask um amina is really how did you get involved in providing what you provide like the the riva iftars which inshallah one day i really want to come to one because they just looked i remember those times i was dropping off food and i was like oh i'll get back in the car going that was when ida was still tiny i was like oh, really? let's please let's go next year and then obviously it was locked down typical um how did you get involved in the pastoral support that you do where do you think there are gaps and what needs to be improved and how do you think that could that could be improved so that's my question okay I'm not aware. So first of all, how did I get involved? I knew what I wanted my Muslim experience to look and feel like. And there was nothing out there to provide that for me. So, you know, you've probably heard this before. If there's not something out there that does things the way that, you know, it is in line with Islam and ticks the boxes that you need ticking, not just for you, but for your family as well. And for many other people in the community. So, so I suppose I'm going back to convert support and pastoral care for converts in general, not being fit for purpose. It was a decision that, okay, nobody else is doing this. If we don't do it, it may continue that nobody else does it. So my husband and, his, my husband and I decided that we were going to do that and try and facilitate that. And, uh, and we did successfully on a number of different levels consistently for some time. So, and we still hopefully inshallah will do some more when obviously all restrictions change and everything. Um, the difficulty we have even in like a city like Manchester where there are so many diverse groups of Muslims is that the main places that claim to offer convert support do so with culturally predatory Islam. They do. And I'm not going to name and shame anywhere because anybody working for the sake of Allah sincerely deserves to be praised as far as I'm concerned. But none of the places that do provide anything I have personally found are what I've needed to have a wholesome, unconditionally, you know, non-judgmental Muslim experience. You're talking like I was like, I'd given up alcohol before I became Muslim. I gave up pork before I became Muslim. I gave up, you know, having relationships before I became Muslim. So a lot of the major things that some people take years for, I'd already ticked all those boxes. But it's the chip, 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 chip. You're not praying right. You're not doing this right. You're not quite dressing right. You've got a little bit of hair showing here. You shouldn't be having makeup on and you shouldn't be doing this and you're laughing too loud and da-da-da and da-da. All those things chip away at a person's self-confidence, self-esteem and emotional well-being. 
And I knew I'd had my fair share of experiences like that because the hug that, uh, at the Shahada stopped very quickly. As you all know, I don't need to tell you that story. You know, everybody wants to hug you in 10 minutes and I'm never a huggy, touchy-feely kind of person. So it was a bit like, why do all these strangers want to hug me? This is like, I'm an introvert, believe it or not. You know, on a personality test, I'm shown as an introvert with extrovert tendencies. So being in my personal space before I was Muslim was a thing for me, you know. So the reason I'm mentioning that is because people are, even with the best will in the world pushing on you like their interpretation of what is good and there hasn't been enough conversation to ask you what's going to make you enjoy this the most what's going to make this feel more authentic to you and I think because you have the rhetoric of culturally predatory Islam we have one interpretation everything else is a bidder everything else is haram you know it's the bidder police it's the haram police none of which is helpful to a conversion you know I always say conversion is a journey and not an event and that could be you know initially straight after the shahada or it can be many years into it while we're still establishing strong confident Muslim identities it's about having a personal and private practice of Islam and this goes for anybody regardless of their interpretation of Islam that you do not project onto other people that person says the Muslim unconditionally accept them as Muslim that's all you've been ever been asked to do Nobody has ever said harass them about the prayer. Nobody's told you to kick the legs apart. Nobody's told you to stand on the feet so that stood so close next to you and interrupt the prayer and probably invalidate the prayer if you're following, you know, sacred law with regards to it. So I started doing it because I was sick of those environments like that. And I was sick of people coming to Islam and despairing about it not long after. I wanted people even to go through those low periods and be like, it's all right. Everybody has highs and lows everybody feels strong and weak and it's okay it's a bit like working in emotional mental health it's okay okay what can we do how can I be of service to you in that is there any way I can help you with that you know the, the emotionally intelligent thing to do is to connect with people on an emotional level before you correct them anyway everybody's rushing to judge each other and correct each other and it literally pushes people away you have a choice of being kind and a choice of being right. Choose kind. Muhammad would have chosen kind. And he is the best example for us to follow. So it's about nurturing spaces around that concept. It's about having your own personal. So even segregation, we never segregated our events, not once. And we had music on in our events. There's an opinion that music is, um, I say an opinion. It's not an opinion. There's an opinion that it's not okay. There's a, Let's talk for a second just argument sake for a moment like there's just two opinions of music which is not one says it's okay one says it's not okay so we followed the more lenient ruling of music of good meaning so no salacious content no explicit lyrics or anything like that being allowed in a space especially when it's nasheed based or songs of good good feeling that bring good emotional well-being in people make them feel whole and help create that nostalgia why it's so important the reason why uh, we did that. I mean, we had people, we had one woman and she turned around to us and she said, you know, I really disagree with this. You've got music on. And we said, OK, but you are the only person complaining about it. Everybody else is happy with it, whether it's a hip hop nasheed and somebody doing spoken word, you know, in accordance with like their tradition of expressing themselves in a creative way. One hundred percent halal, 100 percent halal, especially if it's without any musical instruments whatsoever. But there is also the rules that musical instruments are allowed. So we're going with it's always providing a space that's relatable that's what it's about we all come from environments where music's narrated our childhoods quite often and especially our adolescence where it's got us through so many difficult times you know or 
all these things are so important. All of these things are so important when it comes to considering a space, having attention to detail, making it feel a beautiful space. It has to feel good. It has to be warm. Women are so used to being shoved in dark, cold spaces that don't feel cared about at all. It's This is like your living room from living room. That's what it's supposed to feel like. Your living room from living room with a bit of adab and you know manners and etiquette like you've got guests. And that's what it's supposed to be like. I know that's a really long and drawn out answer and I apologise for that. But the reason is, is because there are, even that I've not done it justice. There are so many things, even if you sat down and wrote a list of how to provide a wholesome space like this for converts and pastoral care, you're constantly going to be adding to that list because somebody will come to you and say, oh, you know, when I was young, we did this thing. And you're going to ask yourself, well, if this is halal, we should do it. So for example, we had like a, a, a one of our parties, a tug of war. So we had like two groups of men on each side of it. It was the most hilarious thing we ever did. And all the kids thought it was hilarious, all the dads, because the look of competition on the men's faces, they're all trying to pull each other over. It's absolutely hilarious. You know, and the reason that we did it is because it's fun, it's halal, and we're all just being Muslim together. It's allowing the space for people to just be Muslim. No expectations, we're just Muslim. We all happen to be Muslim and we want to coexist because community is a massive thing. None of us were supposed to do this in isolation. None of us. I think that's a really important thing, isn't it? You know, we, we as human beings are not designed to be in isolation. And I think a lot of converts do struggle with that isolation. I remember, I mean, I, I had the joy of taking my shahada with Amanda Jane. So I had that support. But I also remember emailing my local mosque, which was maybe five, 10 minutes down the road, saying, what have you got for converts? And they went, nothing, just turn up for Jummah. Like, I don't know how to pray Jummah. Like, what, what am I meant to be turning up for? So I just didn't go. But I have gone to Amina Jane's uh, iftar parties and mashallah, they are wonderful. And I remember making a tiramisu for one, halal one, because you don't have to have alcohol in a tiramisu. Everybody loved it. You know, it's about oh, taking yeah. the stuff and leaving the bad. So I suppose we're saying that there's no black and white. We can accept the good stuff, leave the bad stuff. We need to be open and accepting of the good things. And if they're creating that cohesion of communities, that is a good thing. So I suppose in terms of coming to the end of this podcast, what work do we think that converts need to do to help educate maybe the heritage Muslim community to start bridging those gaps in understanding to create community cohesion? So what what is the stuff that we need to do to start fostering that, that growth between those different communities? I would suggest, I mentioned to you both earlier um, that there's a lecture series on, which is based on uh, exactly what we've been talking about today. It's called Islam and the Cultural Imperative. Okay. And it's by a scholar called Dr. Farooq Abdullah. Dr. Umar Farooq Abdullah, should I say? Sorry, Allah, forgive me. Uh, the reason I mention this is because that's where the basis of all this comes from, where, with its Quranic proof, with its Hadith proof, with its scholarly advice, and way more than I could have gone into today in an hour with you. I mean, I I could talk about this all day. I literally could talk about this particular subject all day because I'm incredibly, this is how I live my Muslim life. So women have said to me over the years, only this year did I start putting my photograph on social media and that was due to becoming a therapist. You need to be visible for people. They need to see you type of thing. And so many women said, I love how British your clothing is. And I was like, yes, yes, yes and yes. Because I stood in front of many siyuk and said, 
can I pray like this? You know, and they're like, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with your clothes. They're loose. Why are you asking us that? <laughs> you know, they're just like, you know whether you can pray in those clothes. You've, you've, only, you've got your face and your hands on show. Of course you can pray in that, you know. And we're talking about curves, loose clothing, the lot. And the reason why I've mentioned that is because I don't put myself out there as look at me, look at me, look at me. But it's nice for somebody to say, you remind me of what a British Muslim should look like. Because, you know, I do fasten my scarf a little bit different sometimes. And sometimes I wear it the way that, you know, traditionally, like a lot of the Arab people wear it. And, you know, I do try to wear, I try to have Western clothes made usually cotton because we just cover it all the time and it can get quite hot obviously at different times of the year uh at a longer length um that cover us and it is doable yes it's a pain no it's not fast fashion uh and it's not always cheap but it's worth it in terms of establishing without ostentation in your heart a cultural footprint of yes i am british and i'm muslim and i am 100 percent cool with that so when it comes to and I've had so many born Muslims say, wow, I love the, I love what you've done with your clothes or I love what you've done with your scarf. And, you know, I get lots of compliments about that because they know I'm covered according to Sharia. They know that they know that by looking at me, even looking very closely. Some teachers have said you're covered even more so, you know, compared to some people where they might have like a fringe out, which I don't even reject that, to be honest with you, because somewhere in someone's culture, that was an OK thing to do based on the rulings that they had at the time. And then it's become a cultural norm derived according to local customs. So we really can't negate, you know, it all comes down to the interpretation and, um, you know, what chain of narration that particular scholar is following or what have you. So I would recommend that everybody who listens to this podcast watches that lecture now it is a long lecture it's two hours long so it's long and it's not it depends if you're really intrigued and you're interested in this subject matter you can do it in half an hour slots or 15 minutes slots as and when you get a moment the excellent thing about the lecture is it shows you all the pictures of the different architecture that we've mentioned it might show you some of the clothing that's mentioned the differences in clothing how identifiable muslims have been throughout the world in their differences in culture but the common thing that they all had was Islam, of course, mashallah, you know, so, and there'll be buildings that you didn't even know used to be mosques or have been replicated off the back of mosques because people thought they were just such incredible pieces of architecture and things like that. So it's about reducing ignorance around different cultural paradigms for people, you know, and cultural norms for people. So I would suggest that everybody who watches this, listens to this podcast, should I say, watches that lecture, even if it takes them a couple of week, weeks in segments, and there's also a paper, a PDF, which is worth reading. And that's called Islam and the Cultural Imperative too. And it's definitely worth a read. Everybody will learn something. And it makes us sit back and say, on a lot. Never thought about it like that. Alice, do you want to jump in before we finish off? Have you got any other questions for Amina Jane? And I've got nothing to add really to what she said. Um, if, apart from I'm going to be watching that lecture series. That's, that's what I'm going to be doing. Absolutely. It's, it's going on my to-do list. I think... I found this eye-opening. I think it's because obviously the therapist, I'm accepting unconditional positive regard and all that, but I don't think I thought, actually, do that. I, I apply that to culture. Do I apply that to myself and my relationship with culture? And I think it sounds like we've all got to do the work. People coming into Islam, people that are already in Islam, we've all got to take the time to think it through and actually experience it and question some of the assumptions and things that we have. Are they helpful? Are they okay? Are there other things that we can open our mind to? Is tug of war okay? 
You know, little things where we go, oh, no, we can't play games. We're Muslim now. Can't, can't have fun. But actually, there's loads of stuff that we can reclaim from our culture that's absolutely A-OK. It is a fundamental, undisputed part of Islamic law from the beginning. Absolutely. And I'm saying that with authority because I know that it is. With mm. certitude, I know that it absolutely is. And we have a personal responsibility. So there are two different types of uh, obligation in front of Allah. There's the far ayin and there's the far kifaya. The far ayin is your personal responsibility, like worship, tahara, wudu, you know, fasting, knowing what your legal personal responsibilities are as an, a, an adult that can obviously, you know, have intellect. And you have to make those choices about how you're going to go about that. But there's also the far kifaya, which is the communal obligation to facilitate um obviously education and understanding and that's why we've done the convert support that we've done over the years is because we were fulfilling a fire fire it was absolutely necessary not just for us but for our own families there's been a lot of sacrifice in that and we're so grateful to Allah to have been in a position to you know help people understand that so the real work is listening to like that lecture for example that we'll post in the comments obviously on the social media platforms because it really is eye-opening for everybody and like you say it is work as an, an individual level everybody's got to do it we really really do it's considered like right up there with obligation you should be aware of this to live wholesomely where you are especially if you're living in a non-western country regardless of what culture you come from because it's a requirement in terms of who we are as Muslims, we're not supposed to be aliens, remember, we're supposed to be the people of peace. When we say salamu alaikum, what we're actually saying is, may you be surrounded in peace because you're in, you know, you're in the presence of Muslims, you can trust us. You know, you, you, we've got integrity and here we are for you type of thing. You know, so may Allah make us uh, good khalifas of uh, the message and true inviters to him. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa lalihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Ameen. I think that's a, a beautiful way to finish off this episode. Real food for thought. So, jazakakar for your time, Amina Jane, and jazakakar for all our listeners listening. And inshallah, they have found something beneficial because I know I have, and I'm sure Alice has too. Um, so, I suppose it's just leaving everyone with Aslam alaikum from me, Jodi. Aslam alaikum from Ali. Assalamu alaikum from Amina Jane. Stay safe and stay we well. Will, inshallah. And hopefully we will, well, I'm going to say see, but hopefully all our listen, listeners will listen again next week. Assalamu alaikum. Mm -hmm.